On episode 125 of the Vincast, I chat with Alice Faring, author, writer, and a passionate advocate for natural wine. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and uh, I'm really excited to be here at episode 125 of the Vincast. Uh, I've had some really, really great chats of late uh, and quite a few more to come. Very exciting to be releasing those over the next few months. But uh, uh, I am really, really want to send out a thank you and a shout out to Lee Tran Lam, who was a former podcast uh, guest. Uh, I really do highly recommend checking out that episode. But uh, she's also a not only a writer and blogger, but also a fellow podcaster. Her podcast, The Unbearable Lightness of Being Hungry, is uh, a little bit like uh, the Vincast, but for chefs and restaurateurs. It's a great insight into how these uh, people work in uh, in food, and uh, particularly in the, the dining scene of Sydney. So highly recommend checking that out. But she was recently profiled in uh, Gourmet Traveller, and she mentioned a number of local podcasts, uh, other food podcasts, but also she mentioned the Vincast. So I just wanted to say thank you to her. Uh, I always really appreciate every time she uh, she mentions the podcast on social media. So guys, go and check out her podcast. Have a listen to her episode of the Vincast as well. Uh, go and get a copy of Gourmet Traveller. But uh, thank you, Lee Tran, and uh, I hope you are well. Uh, as far as this week's episode, I'm really, really thrilled to be uh, letting you uh, have a listen into a conversation that I had with Alice Firing, who is quite possibly one of the most important voices for natural wine in the world uh, as a writer and a, a journalist. Uh, an author of a number of books, uh, and uh, I was able to uh, connect with her on Skype. I never thought I'd actually have an opportunity to, to interview her, so I'm really honoured that she, she was able to make some time, uh, particularly to talk talk about her newest book. So, guys, have a listen. I hope you do enjoy it. Please stick around to hear how you can get in contact with us and find out more about Alice and her many books. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. Alice, thank you very much for joining me via Skype uh, for, for, on the podcast. Um, I'm really, really honoured to have you as a guest uh, after we met some years ago at the Rootsock Sydney Festival, where you were mm-hmm. um, a very special guest. Uh, so I'm, I'm very privileged to have you on the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's, it's lovely to talk to you again. Um, Alice, I start every episode of my podcast by asking the guest if they can remember if, if there was a particular incident or an experience that they had with wine, they can remember a, a, a crystal memory that set them on the path to being uh, uh, very passionate about wine or if it was a, a very slow osmosis. Oh, well, and, and it was slow and it was fast at the same time. So. The I certainly can tell you about the first time I realized that I got drunk. I was probably about four. Whoa. I was on Manischewitz. Um, it was like throwing a tantrum on the floor. But it was a it was a nineteen sixty eight Scannavino Barolo um, that I had in nineteen eighty, and it was basically the wine that just. Even though I was drinking wine and interested in wine, that was the wine that showed me that 
wine was something more than just fun. It was just something incredibly intriguing. Was it a, a, a special occasion you were enjoying this bottle? No, I had rated my, um, you know, I wrote about this in the opening chapter of the Battle for Wine and Love, so I feel a little self-conscious because I hate repeating myself, but, you know, it's for me, I'm just repeating myself all the time, but it may not be for the rest of the world. Uh, I was rating um, my father's mistress's ex-husband's wine cellar, or at least I was asked to. Uh, Phyllis said to me, go and take whatever you want, and I was like, because you knew that I liked wine, and I went in the crawl space, and I felt extremely uncomfortable about it. And of course, I wanted to haul everything up with me to Massachusetts, where I was living at the time. But I just felt I couldn't be that greedy, so I took three bottles, and um, I can't remember what the third one was. One was um, an Alsatian, but this one I knew that I really liked Barolo. And a friend of mine was coming over at a wine cellar, and he liked Verlo. And I thought, well, who better to open up with? So it was no special occasion. <laughs> but it became one. It quickly became a special occasion. Of course. I still have the bottle, so, yeah. It oh, was there you go. All these years. Someone, yeah. someone said to me many years ago that, um, you, you know, that you shouldn't keep bottles that you've drunk, empty bottles, uh, as it's sort of like a, a graveyard in a way, you know, you should enjoy the wine in that moment. But I think there's something nice about, you know, keeping bottles that were an, ex an important experience for you. Oh, I think so too. And actually, I don't know anybody who wine is important to that doesn't. Mm. I just, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to get rid of a couple. And I certainly am not one who keeps all of the empties um, or really there's only two two bottles here mm. that I'm keeping and oddly enough the other one is a Barolo as well um, and it's actually a 19 it's funny one is I've got yeah 1968 1981 Vietti Barolo but it's from the old Michel clone um, from the vineyard that they ripped up um, and it was Ex absolutely extraordinary and I had it a friend of mine had kept it under terrible conditions we had it four years ago mm. it's just amazing but those are the only two oh I guess there are three <laughs> and they add up but no more than three at any 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 one time but there's I, some that you just have to keep you know? I, I always like uh, going into you know good wine bar and you know them keeping like a, it's almost like a hall of fame, like really uh -huh. significant bottles. I, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at what kind of wine bar it is. Exactly. And when you go into a winemaker's cellar and you see their empties or which ones they decided to keep, it tells you a lot about them. So they are clues. It's like, you know, you're, like your environment is a clue to the person and the wines that you keep and the empties that you keep are clues. So, How is it any different know. to, you know, going and looking at someone's record collection or, or library or and collection. sort of seeing, you know, the, 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 the books or, or um, records that they've held on to that, you know, that, that, that had a profound influence on them? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. How did you get into wine? What was, what was um, how did you get interested in drinking wine? basically because I was born smelling everything that went into my mouth and I was intrigued by the smell of wine but you know when I moved to Boston I had a roommate who was in the wine business and this friend that I told you about a fellow Morris dancer 
who had a, a wine collection. And my apartment became the locus for twice a week wine tastings. And after Natalie moved on, um, I kept it going. Mm. So I had about 10 years of intensive wine tastings at my apartment. And I just was having a good time. It was only when I moved back to New York to ditch the 10-year foray into a different career, and I decided that I had to go back to writing, that I started writing about food, wine, and design. And I was just any like any other schnook who was writing about wine who didn't know a hell of a lot. I mean, I knew something. But it was really only the time when I when I found natural wine and I started spending a lot of time in the vineyards that I, I really became a wine writer. Mm. And I didn't ever mean to. And if I had to go back, well, actually, I don't know whether I could have changed anything, but you know, it's going to sound really awful to say that in some ways I regret this is what happened. Um, I never wanted to be pushed into the little corner of only being able to write about wines. Yeah. And but, there, uh, you know, and, and the world pigeonholes you like that. So that is very much the, uh, the, the, the pitfall, but also the opportunity of, uh, working within a niche, you know, you have, uh, an audience in, in, in some cases a real diehard audience, but to a certain extent that audience has limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, when you first started getting into wine, can you remember if there was anything particular that you were connecting with, with wine that you particularly enjoy the experience of, of tasting wine or potentially tasting wine blind? Well, if for the first 10 years, I was just drinking. I just wanted to get to the wines that I liked before anybody else and drink them. And it was purely selfish, and that's what I wanted to do. I didn't, I don't think I even looked at a wine book for the first 10 years. I really, I, you know, I, I was reluctant. I became, I knew about, I studied wine reluctantly. I, I was, I always wanted to be somebody who didn't care if I drank out of a paper cup. Wines, glasses didn't make a difference and it was snobby and I didn't want to be one of those stupid people who made big rituals around wine and seemed like idiots. So that is not what I ever wanted to do. So we kind of like resisted it for a long time until I came to New York. And at that point, once I started to, okay, I'm going to write about this. And then I, um, then I started doing it, you know, more the right way, um, studying it. But the question is, so that it was just basically selfish. I loved the way it tasted. Mm. And after that, I started whittling away at all of the other mysteries. So when you, when you started to, to write about wine and, and think a little bit more uh, analytically and potentially creatively, uh, mm-hmm. did you have to sort of train yourself or did you think about what you've been doing for the previous 10 years as you'd been tasting and as you'd been thinking about the wine purely for the the the, the reason that you wanted to mm-hmm. to pick the one that you enjoyed right. the most uh did you find it difficult to or to to do that or did uh was did you find oh i was already sort of doing this no it, well actually that 10 years of informal learning was really 10 years of 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 finding out what I liked, why I liked it a little bit, but 
really fine-tuning a palette and understanding what I was attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really the why came later. But when I said reluctant, I remember after two years, I was sitting in an Indian restaurant on Boylston Street that actually had a pretty good wine list. And I knew it was all over because I could look at the wine list and realize, like, I knew what I was looking at. And um, it was kind of all over then. Um, But so, yes, I mean, it was kind of interesting to actually, I was never, even though I never wanted to be that snotty person, I also never felt intimidated about learning about wine at that point. I started feeling greatly intimidated when I moved to New York and I started tasting seriously with peers who knew a great deal more than I did. Mm. You know, and I remember very well the first time I spit. And I think I had already been doing blind tastings because that's the way I like tasting. You know, when I had wine tasting parties at my house, that because I wanted to approach a wine without any prejudice. So I don't know, does that answer this question? <laughs> I <laughs> think so. In in those ten years, what what were you doing as far as uh, as as work and um, how were you earning a crust, uh, so to speak? Hmm. Uh, so to speak, uh, well, something that I've always done very poorly at is earning a crust. But even back then, I was studying to be. I got my master's in expressive arts therapy, specifically dance therapy, and I worked uh, with a variety of pop- populations in psychiatric institutions and homes for the elderly and with substance abusers. Wow. Okay. <laughs> fairly, and so I would look at them and... really, 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 like full of guilt and say, why can I drink and you cannot? Mm. It, felt, it felt really kind of awkward. <laughs> so um, how did you um, take the first steps into um, writing about wine? Just blindly pitching things. Also, you know, what, what, any, what any writer, I think, needs to do is that you need to first develop clips. And so I had published a couple of things up in Boston. Um, when I came down to New York and no one knew who I was, my first clips were for free. So I could have one or two. And I just started pitching stories that I felt I had something to say about. So I think I started pitching, um, yeah, I just started pitching about, about wine. And I remember pitching to the Wine Spectator, oddly enough, and my first pitch to them was on, not on wine, but eau de vie. And I remember Jim Gordon, the, I still have the letter, the editor at the time, wrote to me and said, what does this have to do with the wine spectator? <laughs> and I was just, wow, that's pretty wild. Of mm. course, you know, they have, um, they do write about spirits and it just showed me that, you know, I thought maybe I didn't know much, but people who in the positions of greater power knew even less. <laughs> but what, what, what came first, the, the desire to write about wine or the interest in natural wine in particular? Oh, I was just wanting to write about, like I said, wine, food, and design. And wine started to 
take, well, mine didn't take over. As it turns out, for a while I was writing a lot about design. In fact, I was a contributing editor at a magazine about design. But in 1990, I got my first break, I should say, um, as far as a big feature in a big magazine. And I had a story for a magazine called Connoisseur, which was a Hearst magazine. And it was on Long Island Wine. And so then with a very, very solid clip like that, other people took notice. So, um, and it was just a very slow development. It really wasn't until I wrote the Food and Wine magazine official wine guide in 2001 where I became really the wine writer. Um, And, you know, that was a very formative book for me because when I was writing it I realized most of the wines I had to write about were awful to me something had dramatically changed in the wine world that I was not happy about and I started to isolate why I didn't like those wines and what wines I did like and then I started digging deeper and deeper and deeper and realizing that they were from at least organic viticulture and they were made naturally. I thought at the time the problem was all the egregious new oak and toasty new oak. And that's when I entered the world of all kinds of wine technology and I felt like a whistleblower. And so it was, you know, I never thought of myself, I suppose, as a journalist. I always thought of myself as more of just a writer. But at that point I had, I felt I had something to expose to the world and something to tell the world. Mm. So at that time, was anyone really talking about uh, sustainably farmed wine and low intervention natural winemaking? No. No, I I was it. Um, Every once in a while you would be asked to recommend some organic wine, but back in those days still organic viticulture was was still considered fringe and people thought it made really shitty wine. Um, just back in the days in the 70s when organic agriculture and health food stores started opening up and the produce was a little bit less than pretty and sometimes didn't taste so good. Um, they, you know, people were just like trying to figure out how to, how to work the soils back then. So it was really definitely fringe. People who had organic wine in the shop didn't know how to care for them and they were in the sun um, and some wines that were made naturally, even though people didn't even know what that was, like started to explode. So it really it kind of had a bad name. Um, and magazines certainly didn't let me write about it. Big, big name magazines didn't let me write about it because it was too threatening. So no, I was really the only person, I was indeed the only person writing about it. As far as wine technology, there was a guy from Wine Spectator who did a couple of wine tech pieces but when my piece came out in the New York Times in 2001, for better, for worse, winemakers go high tech, it was about um, probably the first major piece that brought up that question to the public. Wow. Okay. What would um, some of the wines or producers uh, or some of the people that kind of if influenced you to be interested in, in wines of that, uh, that, that ilk? Well, there was... Um, when I was writing this book, most of the wines that I really, really loved came from Joe Dresner's portfolio, who is an iconic and now not here anymore 
wine importer in New York City who started out importing and distributing some conventional wines and a lot of conventional wines. But by the by two, 99, 2000, he started really concentrating on these wines, on these natural wines. And so he was certainly an early mentor. He is the one who really introduced me to the profound impact of yeast selection. And after that, um, I took it deeper and I found out about all the other kind of manipulation that can happen with wine. But he was very much an early mentor. And um, yeah, I met a tremendous amount of phenomenal wine producers and, you know, as I said, the other thing that was extremely influential is at that point, I hadn't really spent my own money to go and chase down vigneron and spend time in vineyards. And that's when I started doing that. And that was essential. So that was when you sort of fell down the rabbit hole, as it were. What would what, you, did you travel in the US or travel in, the, in Europe? Um, were well, you... at that point, there was very few people making wines that I wanted to taste or had any interest at all in the United States. So there was no point except, you know, there's just no point in traveling in the States. So really spending a lot of time in the Loire, um, the Loire, the Rhone, but mostly the Loire. And then it, then it branched out as more people through France started working naturally. But at the beginning, it was a lot there. And certainly Burgundy. I spent a lot of time in Burgundy as well in, in those initial days. And there wasn't a lot going on in Burgundy either, but at least people were working biodynamically and the vineyards are starting to. So it's been extremely interesting watching regions like Burgundy start from 2002 to 15 years later when there are a lot of people working naturally. Mm. Well, not a lot, but you know, more. <laughs> more than you might think. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But working, but you know, I, I was talking about the vineyards. That is where it became more of a, of a mission. That's when I feel I became truly a wine writer when I under, started to understand viticulture. Yeah. Not, you know, and, you know, before 2001, I did. I admitted I took press trips. And I'm glad that I did because it was a great introduction. But there's not, there was never any way I could ever get a story from a press trip. Um, I'm not somebody who can be spoon-fed information, which is exactly what happens on press trips. So um, it was really, and it was hard. You know, I never made a lot of money as a writer, and it was hard to be independent about it. But it was important if I was going to get the story I wanted to tell. Back at the at that time, uh, if I mean, if Joe was importing wines uh, in in that uh, in that area, uh, there must have been some market, no matter how small. There must have been um, restaurants, bars, maybe even shops that were um, serving or selling these wines, and there must have been an interested audience. Um, well, of course. But you understand that back then, it wasn't in my first book, even in 2008, I never called them natural wines, really. I talk about the natural wine movement, but the wines themselves I didn't call natural, really started doing that in 2011. But yes, around 2003, um, there was a, I did, um, actually, I did a story about um, 360, and I have the, I have a newsletter called The Firing Line, obviously. Um, 
and now I'm trying to remember the story that I did on Erno Earhart, which was really an amazing um, interview about the early days of natural wine and the outlets. Not calling them natural wines, they were just good wines, and I think that's what we're going now about in in wine. Natural wine is going to redefine what good wine is, so it'll go back to just being wine without having to have a qualifier of natural. But that said, um, three, 360 and a restaurant called Betty, um, which Byron Bates was the wine director of, started discovering these wines. By 2001, Jenny, Fran- Jenny Lefcourt of Jenny and Francois also started importing natural wines. So there were, you know, there weren't many, but there were some, and 360 and Betty had significant amounts. Jonathan Nositer was at um, Balthazar, and also, actually a lot of these guys came out of Balthazar. Um, so Balthazar started carrying a lot of Joe's wines and some of Jenny's wines, and that was the seed that went through New York and Brooklyn. 360 only lasted like a year or two. Oh, I can't remember, two or three years. And then we went into a fallow period where there was there were very few places, like in my neighborhood, where I could go and drink. Um, and now, of course, there's plenty. But it was, you know, like Joe had some really great burgundy. He had a great Sancerre. He had one of the few things that people didn't, they were maybe not zero sulfur, there weren't too many zero zero sulfur things back in those days, but they were low sulfur, and they were naturally yeasted. Speaking with the farmers, and then you know, with your relationship with Joe, did they all find it really difficult, kind of explaining to people what they would, what these wines were, what they were doing, <laughs> and and justifying the 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 choices that they were making? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. It's funny that I I kind of forget about something which shows you something about my palate. Because even before I wrote that first book um, for Food and Wine magazine, you know, I couldn't make a living. And I needed a, I was asking for a sample of Bandol from this guy, Victor Schwartz, who is a wine importer. And he convinced me to forget about wine writing, which actually I wasn't going to forget about wine writing or writing. And I should come and sell wine for him. And that was really great for my education. I remember some wine that he had from the Loire Valley. And it turned out it was a stranger named Thierry Pouzelot. Sound familiar? Very familiar. Thierry? Yeah, right. So um, it was Claude de Tubeuf. And it was like, you know, it was a wine that I absolutely fell in love with. I just could not, both the red and white, so it was Sauvignon Blanc and Gamay. It was just I had never had anything like that, and those were zero sulfur back then. I was crazy for them, and I convinced him to bring them in. Well, the wines lasted about a year and a half with Victor before he couldn't. He realized he couldn't sell any. And I was able to sell a few of those, and I was a really crappy salesperson, which is why I didn't last very long. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, it was just, I, I, I'm not the most aggressive person in the world. So um, I just didn't understand how to make a sale. But... I think, you know, I was, the, I was the person responsible for bringing Terry Puzzlin in for the first time around and then went to Joe. But, yeah, people didn't really understand. Some people got them immediately, but most people didn't understand. But, you know, Joe was not a huge importer. Jenny was not huge. And every year they grew 
slowly. And they probably had, you know, like other people have become mega, um, you know, and both Jenny and Joe's portfolio grow steadily and every year their business gets better. And of course, now we have way more than two natural wine importers in, in the New York City. Yeah. And I think that's the same everywhere. And there's just not enough of the good stuff to go around. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, back then when you were traveling over to Europe and spending time with the farmers and, and presumably you're spending time in, in Paris, for example, uh, was it a great opportunity to find like-minded people uh, and, and share these wines and learn more that way? Well, yes. You know, it's, um, of course, um, it's where I did my learning. I went to the first Divbutai, which is the very now the very huge natural wine fair. Um, my first one was 2002. Um, and let's see, it was 2002. And I'm trying to think when my first natural wine, I think my first natural wine bar was 2001. Um, and finding natural wine bars were just like, oh my God, I can't believe this. This is like crazy. Oh yeah, I remember distinct, distinctly, it was definitely 2001. And um, it, it was kind of funny how things have changed. I went to you know, the three-star um, three Michelin um, Arpege restaurant in 2001. And remember seeing that there was absolutely nothing on that list that I could drink. Already then I was like, it's either had to be pretty natural or nothing. And, but then there were so many wine bars that you could discover wines at and being able to go, I guess I became, you know, a, a natural wine tasting junkie. So where I would spend a lot of time in France going to tastings and then of course going, no, it was, it was amazing. I, it really was again, an extension of my do it yourself wine education, but in a very profound way at what point did you start to write for yourself and and have your own voice and and become uh associated with natural wines well i guess it was the my first natural wine piece was in 2001 um and i did a little things here and there but in 2004 i started to blog and at an insistence the insistence of Josh Mack, who insisted that he was a, a friend who really pushed me into it, he said, I'll build you the site and you start blogging. And I did because, you know, because of my subject matter, it was very hard for me to get work. You know, um, people didn't trust me to write about other wine, which I could, you know, I, I certainly could, you know, I didn't have to just write about these wines, but, you know, I was kind of, um, a whistleblower, and I think I was treated as such. So I, having my own voice, that um, that really developed my international reputation, I guess. And it was, I realized I was taking notes for the book that I would then write because I sold the contract for the Battle for One and Love just at the end of 2005 based on my writings in my wine blog. 
And, you know, so from there it took off. So I guess blogging was pretty influential in my career. Did you find it um, really interesting, a, a completely different medium to be putting your writing out and a, a way for people to be able to connect in, in a different way than traditional print media? Oh, yeah, I found it quite amazing. I mean, it's very frustrating. You know, it's writing for free is so obnoxious. And so I, you know, my form of writing was I'm not, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me. And I really treated it as, um, as diary entries, things that I, and some of them I worked hard on, but they were, they were not traditional. Let me write you an article, but it was it was kind of fun to develop that diary voice, um, and trying to make it relatable, and you know just basically going with the poetry of it. So, so it was slightly um, more stream of conscious, and 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 that was really where you started to write from that first purpose, per, first person perspective. Yes, yeah, you know, and it's kind of it is where I, I don't. It's kind of funny, like I'm trying to think about what what even articles did I ever use first person in before I started blogging. And um, and it's, yeah, probably developed a strong first person through blogging. And now I can't really imagine writing a book in another way. But I do love when I get a chance to write articles in the third person. <laughs> it's just, you know, when I can just ditch me, just get away from me for a while and just like do some, some good structured reportage. You know, I like doing that. Sure. Yeah. It, but sometimes it seems impossible when you have a lot of knowledge about a subject. It, it is pretty hard not to bring your own knowledge into it along with the reportage that you bring. Mm. Were you at all influenced by any particular, um, writers or, or um, books, wine or non-wine, you know, as far as your voice and, and finding that nuance in terms of wine writing? You know, there are a few books that have influenced me just that I found charming. Like, um, I'm going to, like, miss up on, on the title – into the Vinelands, which is um, Somerset and what was her partner's name. It was written in the late 1800s about going to Bordeaux. And then Bouquet was another book that I absolutely adore. Um, and it was written in the 30s by G.B. Stern. Um, and I think... Um, Lawrence Osborne's Accidental Connoisseur, which I was very jealous of because it was so, I mean, he's such a beautiful writer and he, he did very well in that book. And, um, I liked that immensely. Um, it, you know, just he, his writing was so beautiful and a lot of, a lot of modern writing is, just not there uh, so you know it's it's factual it doesn't have a point of view it's not thinking oh there were some other people gosh now that now that i'm walking 
around my apartment <laughs> trying to look for the book so I can. Uh, shit. Um, the Wild Bunch. Patrick Matthews. Sorry, Patrick. Sorry. I've actually never met Patrick, but he's written Real Wine and The Wild Bunch. He wrote the... Actually, I talk about that. I. He was really... You know, he was writing about this before anybody else. He was writing about this in 1997. And if you can get a hold of The wine, Wild Bunch, which talks... And again, he's not really talking about natural wine at all. Just talking about these people who are doing some phenomenal stuff. It's really worthwhile to go back and read those early days. So, yes, um, I mean, obviously, when I was starting to write my first narrative, I, well, I wrote it as if I would never get a novel published, and I probably will never get a novel published, but um, I kind of took inspiration from people who wrote beautiful narratives. So when and you... by, writing a, by writing a narrative, you're able to communicate some, actually, you know, by, let me rephrase this, that I found out, or I chose that by writing a first-person narrative, I was able to deliver up some pretty technical information in a palatable way. So whether or not people liked how personal I was with my books, I think they ended up learning a lot of technical stuff that maybe they would, their eyes would have missed it over otherwise. So when you were putting that first book together, um, how did you go about that? Because you know, subsequent books... Uh, seem to be more, I guess, uh, a shorter period of time in a way, whereas that first book was it kind of went across your whole wine experience. How did you go about putting together the, the first uh, the first book? Huh. Um, gosh, I can't. T- I don't know whether I can tell you. I just don't know. I, I know that I was taking. Well, so the premise of the book was that somebody was taking away the wines that I loved. They were robbing me personally from the wines that I loved, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I basically went into the regions that I felt were most hardly hit by the Parker effect. Um, and And that is way I did it and of course to do it so like any I wrote it like a memoir um, and so I had to start with who I was and why you should care about me and then I wanted to give the reader a little bit of background so I was going into remember I think I went right into UC Davis and what they're teaching people in school these days and then I went into the regions so um I stitched together that way. Yeah, and I, some people like that I linked it to a big breakup that went down for me in 2004. And since it was still relatively still fresh because it was a very long relationship, um, you know, I, I connected the loss of love to the loss of these wines and the birth of the natural wine movement to the birth of a new life. And I kept that as a thread going throughout. You know, hopefully not too much, but that's what I did. When did you find that you experienced the most kind of pushback um, and, you know, part, parts of the wine industry and wine media, I guess, 
pointing a finger at you and saying, there's the enemy, you know. Yeah. Yeah, like I'd get it in different ways. One is just that, um, I mean, how difficult it was to get, to get um, freelance work, which was both a blessing and a curse because doing freelance work is, unless you get a contract, is often a contract with poverty. So, um, you know, it's like, as a friend of mine calls it, pitch and grovel. Um, But, you know, not in major ways, um, but certainly California pushed back a great deal. And, um, you know, I I would, I'm not going to mention this critic's name, but would come back and say, why do they hate you so much in Oregon and California? And you would tell me about things that winemakers would say about me. I'm like, why are you even telling me this? <laughs> you know, um, you know, there's uh, some people who I've been friendly with, like some importers would say, um, look at me accusingly about it. People are asking me about yeast and sulfur because of you. You know, so it was um, it was kind of weird. In some places, I did feel like I was being treated like the enemy. Um, that was but, sort of that was sort of what led to the second book, wasn't it? Because I, I remember when I was reading it. Uh, actually, I think I read your second book first. Um, so I did it around the wrong way, uh, but. You know, you were at a, a tasting or something, and and like Californian producers were sort of pressing you, and and then someone said, well, why don't you come out to California and and actually get involved with, uh, you know, doing it the way you want to do it? That kind mm. of set you on the path for the second book, didn't it? That certainly did. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because the book started, really did start when the Battle for Wine and Love ended because it's it started really on book tour for that. But, um, yeah, that, that is exactly how that book started. But also I could see it coming that as natural wine was getting to be more of a thing that people will co-opt it and they will dumb, a, dumb it down and they will pretend to make natural wine. And so I just wanted to make sure there was a book out there that gave the history and put of natural wine and put it into context and talked about the issues. Um, so there would be something out there as some sort of textbook. So that's really, that was the impetus behind writing it. as far as the emotional reason for writing the book. Do you have people reading your work and, challenging you and, and, and saying, Hey, you said this about wine from our country or our region. And, you know, you're not, you, you, you're sort of generalizing, you know, I want to show you why we think that you're not correct in this. Um, what, what were some of the other places beyond, you know, the fairly heavy hitting us wine regions or, or wine producing States? Well, and I, I, I know that, um, when I came out to Rootstock, I think Wine Australia didn't have flattering things to say about me. <laughs> um, that's changed. I just gave a wine dinner last week for Anton and James, and you know there were people from Wine Australia there, and they were like totally into it. So things have changed a great deal. 
Um, yeah, I have, to, I have to be honest. Like that was something that did kind of uh, when I was reading um, the first two books, I was like, ah, oh, it's a shame that you know she probably doesn't have access to some of the things that are happening in Australia. So some of the the what I consider to be classic producers like uh, Castagna, for example, and then this kind of new wave that were being influenced by a lot of the wines that you uh, were, were professing to be amazing and, and, and loving. And we were actually getting lucky enough to get access to some of these wines to be influenced as far as how we were making the wines in Australia. Um, how did you get the opportunity to start hopefully changing well, your perception of the Australian wine? Well, actually, I think that in suggested producers at the end of Naked Wine, I think Castagna is in there. And I'd been drinking Castagna for, I knew about Castagna for quite a while because I met um, met them at Renaissance at, um, when they used to show up at Renaissance. And so I would, you know, I would get some of the uh, new Australians and I first met um well, I first had Anton's, and I first met Tom Showbrook in my apartment in 2010. So, you know, I I did know, but I didn't. I wasn't going to write about any place that I hadn't visited, and I felt very strongly about that. And that's one reason that Australia wasn't in the book. Um, it was also too big to deal with, um, and it we did would need a book in itself. I think more than a chapter about um and it was too culturally foreign to me so I, 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 do i have the exclusive that's the next book you're gonna write about australia <laughs> i don't think australia needs me to write about australia you got max max does a great job <laughs> oh, between max and mike and, right and my mic you know my good it's friend like, daniel Honan. i think that they would just you know that wouldn't work <laughs> it's their territory no but i could probably i could i've written about australia but since um in in various places um and uh australia's you know doing some absolutely amazing things without a doubt and it was great when i came out for rootstock to be able to see some of those things firsthand one one country i guess that's really needed uh, uh, someone to, to champion them was Georgia. Uh, and that was some, uh, you know, wines you wrote about early on and then you actually wrote and did, you know, divided an entire book to Georgia. And I believe, you know, the, the big influence for that was former guest of the podcast, uh, John Verdeman uh, from Pheasant's mm-hmm. Tears. Uh, how did you first encounter wines from Georgia? And, and, and can you talk a little bit about how they brought you into their world and, and seduced you, as it were? Uh, yeah, they didn't have to do much. <laughs> well, you know, actually, the, the, for my first taste of Georgian wine happened in 2008 at when, um, was it the, no, was it 2000? Yeah, it was the summer of 2008 uh, party for uh, the Battle of Wine and Love. And I had a couple of other wines, and I was really, really curious. And then an invitation came to speak at the first International Quivery Conference. And as soon as I walked off the plane, I'm like, I'm in. I'm done. This is like, the, i, I got to write about this place. And at that time, there were only five producers really making wine that I really liked. And now it's exploded like crazy. So, no, I... Um, 
that was an amazing experience. And um, so many people fall for the charms of Georgia and the authenticity of it and the drunkenness of it and the color of it. So that's basically what did it. I just was so amazed that and very committed to trying to do as much as I possibly could do to give them enough exposure so nobody felt the financial pressure to make a more conventional wine if they didn't want to. And um, so that became a mission for me. So the, the, the new book, uh, which um, you very, very kindly sent me a copy of and I am um, ravenously devouring, uh, is, is a little bit different uh, as, as far as the kind of writing that you've done in the past. It's, it's a little bit more about uh, the soils specific uh, and, mm. and the earths and, and how they influence wines. Where did you kind of come up with the, 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 the idea for this book? Yeah, well, The Dirty Guide to Wine is, yeah, it's a total departure because it's not a narrative, even though it is told in the first person, but it's not narrative. And I, I guess if I think about it, all of my books have a point of why I'm writing it. Why am I writing this book right now? which is um, always an important thing for a writer to have. And I really am tired of people drinking by grape variety. It's, I never do. It's really silly if somebody goes into a bar and asks for like the Malbec, as I hear people ask for, or the Merlot, and they get something like, uh, like a cove from the Loire, which is lean and violet-like instead of blueberry and fat and sunny because people are, they talk about great variety, but really what they're asking for is a style. And I started thinking that we've lost the sense of place. In the new world, people talk about terroir and what they're really saying is I have a nice view. And I really wanted to bring the drinker back to the sense of place. And to do that is not saying that, yes, I, tonight I want to drink from granite or I want to drink a limestone wine or basalt, but just to understand. And maybe they'll draw some conclusions like I do, which is like, wow, I'm totally in it for granite. I love granite. Um, all of the regions that I love are from granite. I think that's pretty interesting. And uh, anybody reading the book can then do that for themselves as well. Also, where it is similar to the other books is that I too really, well, I, I had Pascaline help me. Um, she was a great research assistant, but for the most part, I don't write about any place in that book that I haven't been to. And there are a couple of places that Pascaline insisted that we include and, you know, and actually I agreed, but you know, I felt, I said, look, you, you gotta, you gotta write those sections. So there are little small sections like uh, Fougere that, you know, I edited, but she basically brought us there. So the point is, these are my favorite places that have this. This is the soil type. It's, it's segregated, it's chopped up into igneous soil, sedimentary, metamorphic. So here are two pages on geology. Here are the regions that I love that have this. Here are the climates, here are the people who work really well and a couple of winemaker profiles to throw in. So it really is different. I hated writing every minute of it. <laughs> 
<laughs> Did this feel like a lot more work than uh, than you're used to as oh, far yeah. as writing your books? Oh yeah, and and it's um, and you know you always with a book that I really I was afraid that I was singing out of my range. I was worried that I didn't have the technical ability to do the kind of job that I wanted to. So I was very grateful to have a geologist fact check it for me. It's not a geology book, but the last thing I wanted was a geologist to pick up the book and go, oh my God, she's so fucked up. I can't believe this. <laughs> so um, this is like, I just couldn't know. So it's, nobody's told me that has happened so far. And there are a lot of mistakes in the book, but nobody's caught them. I can't believe it. Um, but there's, um, and I'm not telling all you listeners to go out there and catch some mistakes, but maybe the second edition won't have them. Um, I know that obviously uh, more recently the concept of minerality and being able to um, detect minerality in wine, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about that and, uh, and you kind of addressed that right at the beginning um, or, or Pascaline does um, and I think that's a it's a really interesting discussion, and possibly geologists do need to kind of get more involved and uh, and say you know like separate themselves from the the, the science and theoretical uh, uh, understanding of the way minerality works and 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 have that more emotional and aesthetic approach to a wine, um, which is probably pretty difficult for them. Mm, it is. I don't understand all this ge wine geologists like Alex Maltman, who writes a lot about it, and I don't understand this anger. About I guess it's, it almost comes down to semantics. You can't use the word minerality for wine. Like why the fuck not? You're like um, you can use all other sorts of descriptors. And I make up descriptors all the time to talk about wine. But we all know what we're talking about when we're talking about minerality. It's a stony kind of edginess or saltiness in a wine. So why not just get over it? Um, because it's not actually mineral? Well, if you need to prove that, go ahead, prove it. But we all know in dry extract that crud that's left over in the glass that is kind of got some mineral content. Anyway, um, <laughs> we could <laughs> wax lyrical, uh, you know, endlessly. Um, we could indeed. I, I really do appreciate you making some time uh, to be on the show. Uh, and I wish I could speak to you for hours and hours. Uh, but I really do recommend people um, read your books because it's, it is a fantastic insight into your journey and why you are so passionate and um, as such an important voice for wines that although represent a very small part of the industry, uh, they are possibly, you know, taking a lot of attention, uh, which is exciting. So um, I really do uh, appreciate and am very uh, grateful that you were able to, to be on the show. Thank you very much and hope to see you on your side of the pond soon. That would be fantastic. Uh, but people can still um, subscribe to The Firing Line? People can still, yes, by all means. In fact, I have a new a new website that is up. And so basically all of my content for the website, which is way more structured than my blog was, um, it, all the four years is available to subscribers. And that goes into in-depth things like 
the Mouse series or learn all that you can about Lee's two wine recommendations and winemaker profiles. So, yeah, I feel like, yeah, there's an Alice Firing shop. There's a newsletter. There are the books. It's, like, amazing. <laughs> and people can follow you on social media. Uh, Most of you are just at Alice Firing. Yeah, Alice Firing. Alice.firing on Instagram, Al- at Alice Firing on Twitter. And I'm extremely easy to find. What's kind of funny, on my newsletter, I'm realizing you would never know I wrote any book because my books are just not up there. I have to fix that. But um, <laughs> but just go to Amazon and which or your local bookstore and ask for the books. Certainly <laughs> in Australia, there are some, uh, some or, great or go to Facebook wine yeah. shops and bookshops. Anyway, and I'll be there. Behind. Yep. Awesome. Well, again, um, thank you. It's been great chatting with you, and uh, I do look forward to hopefully meeting you in person again. Yes, it'll be great. And thanks so much for giving this call. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And you can follow me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And you can follow the podcast on at The Vincast. Uh, you can find my YouTube channel at Intrepid Wino, uh, which has lots of different videos, including my series Let's Taste Videos Looking at Australian Wines. Subscribing to the YouTube channel would be fantastic. Uh, and leave a comment on some of the videos I'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can subscribe to the podcast on uh, iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher. I believe the podcast is now on iHeartRadio, and I think it's going to be on Spotify soon. So just put in the Vincast or Wine Podcast into wherever you listen to uh, to podcasts, uh, and hopefully uh, you'll be able to find the Vincast there. Uh, Please do make sure that you are subscribed, and also leave a a rating and a review. You can do that on the Podcasts app if you have an iPhone now, uh, because leaving a review gives me feedback, it gives potential guests, guests and also listeners feedback uh, and also puts the podcast out to a bigger audience uh, you can come and visit me at intrepidwino.com lots of different information there also ways of getting in contact with me uh, i'm very excited to be able to uh, let you know that the vino intrepido wines are now available there's a section on the website where you can read up on uh, all of the wines that i've made in the past uh, and also where you can buy the wine I'm also looking at uh, doing some live uh, episodes of the podcast here in Melbourne, uh, hopefully with some former guests of the show, uh, doing more topical type stuff, hopefully incorporating some wine tasting. So stay tuned for some more information about that. Uh, That will be coming up very soon. Uh, And, uh, of course, I want to thank uh, the the guys at Earbuds uh, for supporting the podcast. It's great to be part of uh, a Melbourne podcast network, so do check out Earbuds online as well. But, guys, until next time, bye. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com